A couple of years ago, while I was on staff at Trinity, I had the opportunity to lead a group of college students on a mission trip to Brooklyn, New York. The church that we are partnered with sits in the heart of Brooklyn's Chinatown. But if we were to walk two blocks in one direction, we would be in an entirely Puerto Rican neighborhood. If we were to walk two blocks in another direction, we would have been in an Arab-American neighborhood. And yet again, if we were to walk two blocks in another direction, you would have found yourself in a Hasidic Jewish community. Part of our team's orientation to the city was to go on a walk through each of these neighborhoods and to simply observe. So it's a Friday afternoon. We're in the last leg of our walk, and we find ourselves in this Hasidic Jewish community. Hasidic Judaism is a branch off of the Orthodox tradition, and rather than focus on legalism within the Old Testament law, Hasidic Jews emphasize piety with a focus on the emotional relationship with God. So it's early Friday afternoon, and everybody in the community is looking like they're on a mission. Buses are taking children home from school. People are doing their last-minute shopping before all the stores close at 1 p.m. Many of the men are walking around wearing their prayer shawls and they're clenching the Torah in their two hands and it's covered by this ornate cloth covering to protect the scrolls. It's immediately evident to me what we're observing. The people are preparing for their Sabbath preparations. And you could tell that this was a vital part of who they were as a community. Schools closed early every Friday so that kids could be home before sundown. Shops closed early every day, every Friday so that the families could get back to their homes to prepare for the Sabbath. And I remember dwelling on what I observed there and thinking about how astounding it was to see a community that placed such a high value on observing Sabbath. Since January, we've been in this series titled Amazed, and we've been looking at some of the astonishing claims that Jesus makes about his authority, about his power, and about who he is. And last week, we looked at the spiritual discipline of fasting, and Garth encouraged us to think about areas that we might be able to incorporate fasting into our lives. Today's text gives us a chance to look at another spiritual discipline, Sabbath rest. So we will be continuing in the Gospel of Luke, looking at chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. If you've got your Bible with you, go ahead and turn there with me. In these passages, we see controversy arise as the Pharisees question Jesus about what is permissible on the Sabbath. The Pharisees took the Sabbath very seriously, but we'll quickly see that their understanding of the Sabbath is quite different from that of Jesus. Before we get into our text Let's ask God to speak to us through his word together this morning in prayer. Gracious God, we calm our hearts in this place. We come away from rush and hurry and into the stillness of your peace. So Heavenly Father, would you unclog our ears by your spirit? Would you soften our hearts that we might hear and receive your words of truth, your words of grace, and your words of mercy as we hear your word proclaimed. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And our text for today, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some, of his, some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, and so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and, and said to the man with a shriveled hand, Get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. In this passage, Luke tells us about two separate interactions between a group of Pharisees and Jesus concerning the topic of proper Sabbath practice. And as we dig into this text, I want us to first look at these two Sabbath controversies separately we'll find that Jesus makes significant claims about his authority and then we'll move to some application and answer the question of how we might be able to think differently about observing Sabbath in our own lives. But before we specifically look at what's going on here in the text, we first need to have a basic understanding of Sabbath. Very simply put, Sabbath is a time where work ceases and we rest. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, in describing the Sabbath, looks back to two major moments in the Old Testament, creation and the giving of the law. The idea of Sabbath is first established within the context of creation. After six days of creating the universe, God rests on the seventh day. Sabbath means to cease from work. On the seventh day, God stopped creating. And so Sabbath means that there's a real change. The cessation of normal activity for either a different activity or for relative inactivity. But Keller points out that it's not a passive form of resting from work. Sabbath means to enjoy the results of work. God did not only cease work, but the text tells us that God finished his work. And so this means not simply ceasing work to pick it up again but being satisfied with what you've done as sufficient and considering some things complete and moving on. So Sabbath is not simply inactivity. Instead of producing, it's a time for us to enjoy what we've produced. The model of God's rest from work became a requirement for humanity with the Ten Commandments. It was the fourth commandment that was given by God to Moses. And in Deuteronomy, the Ten Commandments are once again laid out. And in this instance, God ties the Sabbath to the Israelites' exodus from Egypt. 
Deuteronomy 5, 12 through 15 says, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. God establishes the Sabbath day as a reenactment of the Israelites' freedom from the bondage of slavery. It is a reminder of the deliverance that only God could provide. And we'll come back to this idea later in this message. Through the creation narrative to the giving of the law, and with the further instruction that is instituted in Deuteronomy, we find that God is the author of the Sabbath. And because Sabbath is God-ordained, only God has the authority to set the standard for appropriate Sabbath practice. And this will be significant as we move into looking at our text for today. So first, let's take a look at this first incident that takes place in Luke 6, verses 1 through 5, where Jesus claims authority over the Sabbath. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain and rub them in their hands and eat kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Let's pause here. You might think that the Pharisees have taken issue with the fact that Jesus and the disciples are eating grain from some random person's field. But the law actually allows people to do this very thing. You don't need to turn there, but in Deuteronomy 23, it says, If you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pick kernels with your hands, but you must not put a sickle to their standing grain. In other words, they were more than welcome to pick some grain and to eat it, so long as they weren't using tools to harvest and taking a massive amount of grain home with them. And this was a provision in the law as a means for the widow and the orphan, the poor and the hungry to have the opportunity to eat. And this is important. It was permissible to break the law in order to preserve life. And what the Pharisees had a problem with was with the physical act of picking and rubbing the chaff off of the grain so that they could eat. They would have classified this sort of effort as work and therefore forbidden on the Sabbath. As I mentioned before, the Pharisees took the Sabbath very seriously. So seriously, in fact, that they had taken on the role of interpreting God's law for the people. They wanted to make sure that people were being obedient to God. And so to ensure that this was the case, they added what they called a fence around the law. They created laws that were stricter than what the Old Testament actually demanded so that even if their fence laws were broken, the law of God would not be. The intention behind the law was initially good. But the Pharisees were hypocritical and had fallen into a works-based understanding of salvation, missing the actual heart of the law. And so Jesus doesn't address the Pharisees' claim that he's doing work, but rather Jesus speaks to the heart of the issue at hand. Look at how Jesus responds to them, picking up in verses 3 through 5. Jesus answered them, Have you never heard what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful, only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to, him, said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus responds by asking what seems to be a pretty pointed question. Jesus' argument in answering the Pharisees was that there are exceptions even to important religious standards. Here he cites the example of David eating the bread of the presence of God 
which is kept in the holy place of the temple, which is only to be eaten by a priest. In 1 Samuel, David, who is the rightful king, and his men are fleeing from Saul, who is trying to have them killed. They go to Ahimelech, who's a priest, and he offers them this consecrated bread in their time of need. While the Sabbath is not explicitly mentioned in this account in 1 Samuel, um, the point that Jesus is making is that David did something that would be considered not lawful by eating the bread of presence. The scriptures that the Pharisees professed to rely on, what they used to make their case against Jesus, didn't condemn David for this. And so how much more should Jesus the Son of Man, be allowed to feed his men free of condemnation because he is, in fact, greater than David. And so in this, Jesus is pointing out two things. First, Jesus is pointing out that human need is of greater importance than Sabbath ritual. And then in verse 5, Jesus says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, this might not sound initially like a significant claim, but this is a claim that sets into motion the Pharisees' desire to have Jesus killed. Earlier in the series, we heard Mike talk about how the Son of Man is a messianic title that Jesus often uses for himself. But now Jesus is not just continuing to refer to himself as this messianic figure. He is also claiming to have authority over something that only God can have authority over. And so to claim to be the Lord of the Sabbath is essentially a claim to be God. In this first interaction, Jesus has claimed authority. Now having claimed his authority over the Sabbath, let's look at the second half of our text. And here we'll see Jesus demonstrate his authority. Let's pick it up again, continuing in verse 6 through 11. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand up in front of everyone. And so he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. It's interesting that in verse 7, Luke tells us that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. The setting is this. It's the Sabbath. They're at a synagogue. It's a day of rest and a day of worship. And rather than being at the synagogue for the purposes of worship, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are watching and waiting to catch Jesus in the act of breaking the Sabbath. I imagine today this might look like someone going into a church with the sole purpose of looking at what the church does poorly or trying to go and just find flaws in everything that the pastor is teaching so that they might bring it up to him later. And the ironic thing is, here you might argue that the Pharisees are actually working harder than anybody else in this story in their attempts to police Jesus. 
Verse 8 tells us that Jesus knows what they're thinking. And so he asks them, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? The Pharisees are silenced by this question. They cannot win their argument by answering it. And so Jesus continues asking the man with the atrophied arm to stretch out his hand. Notice too that the text doesn't give any indication that Jesus actually did anything in this situation that could be considered work. He doesn't even touch the man in this case. But he simply speaks a word. Nor does the disabled man do any forbidden work. For he simply stretches out his hand. Jesus' accusers were silenced. And they were furious. In this second Sabbath controversy, Jesus is demonstrating his authority as Lord of the Sabbath. What is permissible on the Sabbath is not confined to a list of rules, but rather Jesus is showing by his actions that he has the authority to set the standards for the Sabbath. And for Jesus, the Sabbath is about mercy and restoration. And really, in both of these instances, Jesus is posing the question, which should come first on the Sabbath? Adhering to a set of rules or meeting the needs of humanity? Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? A couple years ago, I was leading a Shig small group with Jono. um, And a couple of the students in our group, along with Jono and some of the other leaders, they started coordinating a group of students to go to downtown Chicago every Sunday afternoon. They'd make... PB&J sandwiches, they'd drive down, they'd hand them out to the homeless, they'd hear their stories and just get to know them. Now, imagine if I were to say to them, why are you making sandwiches and driving to the city on a Sunday? You're supposed to go to church, have lunch with your family, sit at home, watch football, and go to Shig. Making sandwiches, driving to the city, and handing them out, that's just too much work. For a Sunday. Save it for another day. The argument sounds foolish. And that's because it is. But essentially, that's what the Pharisees are doing here. They're placing greater significance on the ritual. But Jesus, by claiming authority over the Sabbath, and by demonstrating that authority in the healing of the man, Jesus shows us that he is the true interpreter of God's law. He has claimed authority, and he has backed his claim by demonstrating his authority as Lord of the Sabbath. And so what does this mean for us? How how are we to respond to this claim? As we think about applying this text, and as we think about what it means for us as Christians to practice Sabbath, you might ask, well, should we even still practice Sabbath today? The simple answer to the question is yes. In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And that's what we see Jesus doing here in this text. Jesus is not abolishing the practice of Sabbath, but he is showing us that Sabbath isn't about a list of rules. And so as we consider how we might practice Sabbath in our own lives, it's important for us to be cautious. By whose standard are we living our lives? 
the standard of man or the standards of God. Christians are often really quick to point out the hypocrisy and legalism of the Pharisees, but if we're not careful, we can fall into a similar type of hypocrisy. We set standards for ourselves that in and of themselves aren't terrible, but the danger is that we can begin to expect others to adhere to our own expectations. And when they fail to do so, we become judgmental and question the authenticity of their faith. This is exactly what the Pharisees did with the Sabbath. They made their own rules to live by in order to keep as far away as possible from breaking the Sabbath. But they considered their laws to be the standard of righteousness. And we don't have the privilege to set the standard for righteousness. God does. And thankfully, that's the case. Because as good as our own intentions may be, we cannot live up to them. No matter how hard we try, we will never live up even to our own standards, let alone the standards of God. But thankfully, we have a Savior in Christ who when we place our trust and our hope in Him as our Savior and our Lord, His righteousness covers our sin. His righteousness covers our sin. And so as Christ is gracious, we should be gracious. The second thing that I want to point out is that the Sabbath is for our benefit. Mark writes on the same interaction in chapter 2 of his gospel. And in his account, he tells us that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. We're not to be restricted and confined by the Sabbath, but rather the Sabbath is given to us as a gift. A gift for spiritual and physical refreshment. Sarah and I got married a little over two and a half years ago. And at that point in time, Sarah still had a year left of undergrad to finish. I was finishing up my master's degree at Trinity. I was working 30 hours a week at Trinity and working 20 hours a week at the church. Seemed like a good idea at the time. (laughs) During that time, it seemed like we were going nonstop. There was never time to rest and to appreciate what we had accomplished because there was always something new to be working on. By the time I would finish up a week of work at Trinity, it was time for me to make sure that things were together for church on Sunday. After a short amount of time of living out this pattern, it became quickly evident that it wasn't sustainable. We're not made to go nonstop. We need rest, and if we push ourselves too hard, we'll find that we become physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually exhausted. In the season of life that we're in now, Sarah and I have emphasized the importance of practicing Sabbath in our lives. And I think that it's been an absolutely vital thing for our own personal relationships with the Lord. But as well, it's been vital to our relationship with each other. So you might ask, what are some practical ways for us to practice Sabbath? Sabbath manifests itself in two spheres of our lives. Individual individually and as a community. Individually, it's important to keep in mind that part of the Sabbath is for the opportunity to rest. Again, I really like the way that Tim Keller talks about the actual discipline of the Sabbath. And for the sake of simplicity, I want to lay out the basic foundations of this idea that he calls inner rest. Keller articulates, to practice Sabbath clearly means to get some internal peace and freedom from stress and work as well. So how is this practice? 
Keller suggests that we balance our Sabbaths with three different types of time. Avocational, contemplative, and inactive time. Avocational time is time that you would spend just doing something that you enjoy. Um, This could be doing just about anything from working out, exercising, playing basketball, running, practicing an instrument, maybe it's cooking, maybe it's studying a topic that interests you. If you find any of these sorts of things restful or enjoyable, these are all avocational activities that could take up some Sabbath time. The second type of time is contemplative. Taking time to focus on God, to thank him, and to just spend time with him. If you've been to Christ Church for a while, you've undoubtedly heard Mike talk about this idea of 10 and 10. Spending 10 minutes a day in the word and 10 minutes of prayer. Um, and we encourage this model of devotional time for, for your daily devotional time with God. But I think it serves as a great example of a contemplative time of Sabbath. The third type of time is inactive time, and this is just simply unstructured time. Time to be spontaneous, no plans, no to-do lists, just times to rest and to cease from work. And so as you think about your individual Sabbath practices, it might benefit you to try and balance your time with avocational, contemplative, and inactive times of rest. Ultimately, in all of these approaches, The Sabbath is about surrendering control. By practicing Sabbath, we are acknowledging that God is at work in our lives and that he has control over everything. The Sabbath doesn't exist for us to take time off of work so that we might worry about the things that we need to get done. That defeats the purpose of the Sabbath. The purpose of the Sabbath is to be liberated from those responsibilities and to seek satisfaction in the work that has already been accomplished which points us to our second sphere, practicing Sabbath communally. A large aspect of Sabbath involves doing what we're doing here now, enjoying God's work of redemption in corporate worship. This takes us back to the passage from Deuteronomy that I read earlier, and I want to read it again for you. It's Deuteronomy 5, verses 12 through 15. It says, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. God institutes the Sabbath day as a reenactment of the Israelites' freedom from the bondage of slavery. Again, it's a reminder of the deliverance that only God could provide. And that's what we do here every Sunday for worship. We gather together, united in Christ, to remember our freedom from the bondage of sin. We gather as a reminder of the deliverance that we receive that only God can provide. I like to think of our corporate gatherings as an opportunity every week to rehearse the rhythms of the gospel. Now what do I mean by this and and how does it relate to Sabbath? The idea of rehearsal takes into account the past the present, and the future. From a looking back into the past perspective, in order to rehearse, there's something previously established that is worth rehearsing. When it comes to theater, uh, you're typically working from an already written script. It's been done before, and therefore it has its roots in history. As you rehearse, you're creating something unique. No two performances are the same. And so even though what is being rehearsed has its roots in the past, there is something distinctly unique within the context of its new setting. 
It has its roots in the past. It encompasses the context of the present. And as you rehearse, you're preparing for a future performance. I'd like to think of our worship in a similar sense. It's shaped by and has its roots in the past. We gather because of the work of Christ on the cross, because of his resurrection, and because of what's revealed to us in God's word. We sing songs written by Christians across all generations. We pray prayers that have been recited by believers throughout history. We affirm our faith through the creeds established by the early church fathers. There's a profound history, a profound richness to the history of our faith. But the moments that we gather in this space are not simply replications of the past. Every time that we gather together for corporate worship is a unique moment. A moment in which we rehear the good news of the gospel so that we might be better equipped to live it out Monday through Saturday. But even more so, we're rehearsing for an eternity of worship, for the ultimate Sabbath rest that comes from a saving faith in Jesus Christ. The only way to understand the actual meaning of the Sabbath is to understand what it points to, which is this. Jesus is the ultimate source of our eternal rest. Looking back on that experience, on that mission trip in Brooklyn, I still have this sense of amazement of that, that community's devotion to the Sabbath. Now, I don't want to over-glorify their observance. They are missing a key, the key purpose of the Sabbath. They're not finding their rest and their hope in Christ. But still, what I saw on that one afternoon was a group of people who delighted in the practice of Sabbath. What would it look like if Sabbath became a practice that we delighted in? What, it would look, what would it look like if we thought of Sabbath as an opportunity for restoration of the body, of the mind, and of the soul? Jesus has claimed and demonstrated his authority over the Sabbath, and he invites us to find our ultimate rest in him.